Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the show. This one coming to you live from my OG Topanga apartment, which I feel like I've been talking about a lot on this podcast, so I'll spare you my nostalgia, but uh, this will probably be... I haven't recorded a podcast in this apartment for a really long time. Um, I haven't really lived here since May, maybe even as far back as January, really. Um, But this is where it all began, and I'm sitting here on the floor going to do a big uh, packing day today and sitting here on the floor in the sunlight looking out at the gorgeous view recording this intro and um, yeah it will likely be the last time I ever record anything in here Um, but not to harp on that I know I talked a lot about transitions uh, in the last episode of the show Um, this week I am co-releasing an episode with the wonderful Kyle Tierman Um, I've known Kyle for a little while now, and we have been planning to do a podcast, either me on his show or vice versa, for a while now. And um, he's down in L.A. for the Motherfucker Awards, which I will get to in a moment. Um, But uh, he's down here, and we've been hanging out a little bit, and we decided to just co-release one, Um, which was really fun. This will be the first time that I'm co-releasing an episode with someone else, with another podcaster. it was really nice to kind of share the hosting responsibilities, similar to what it feels like when I do a show with Aaron on our new podcast, Horror Rapport, which if you haven't checked out, please go do so. Um, my friend Aaron and I are going to just be having conversations between the two of us. I think we'll bring in people later on, do interviews, but for now we're picking topics having everything to do with sex and power and gender and eroticism. Uh, We're going to be talking even about things like our bodies and anything really that we can think about that has anything remotely to do with sex. Um, And we have two episodes out so far and uh, we've gotten really good feedback about it. It's it's been a really nice um, space for me to really uh, further explore and focus on um, sexuality, which I think is my greatest interest in life. Um, and although I talk about it a lot on this podcast, uh, it's nice to kind of have just one little place where I can obsess over it in the way that I want to. So if you have been interested in the conversations and topics I've brought up on this show around, um, sex and everything that 
uh, is related to sex, you will definitely like Horror Report, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, and you can find it everywhere you find podcasts. Um, I'm really excited. We're going to be doing a lot of different cool things and really engaging the audience. Um, so stoked on that. Um, back to Kyle. Uh, so I mentioned he's in town for the motherfucker awards. I wanted to put this episode out before, uh, the awards. For those of you that don't know, this is the second year that it's happened. It happens, um, in LA at the Miracle Theater. Uh, this year it's going to be December 3rd. Tickets are on sale. Uh, you can find them at themotherfuckerawards.com. And um, I went last year. It was so fun. And I know this year is going to be even more fun. It was conceived of by um, Kyle and uh, Chris Ryan. And um, basically, it's the point of it is to use her uh, humor to bring awareness to environmental issues that I think we often avoid because they're so fucking depressing and dark and dry and complicated. And so Chris and Kyle conceived of this idea, like, what if we create this mock award ceremony where we celebrate the companies that are fucking Mother Earth the hardest? Get it? Uh, pretty fucking clever. Um, so, uh, presenters in like specific, like well-known people in specific fields related to the different categories that they nominate companies within like fire, land, water, etc., present the awards and then comedians accept the awards on the company's behalf. Um, so I think this year, each of the comedians is actually going to create like a specific character. Um, and they pretend they are uh, an employee of or the owner of or somehow in relation to the company and go up on stage and collect the award on behalf of the company and woven into the entire narrative, both in the presenting, um, it, both within the speeches of the presenters and uh, the comedians are lots of education around um, what these companies are doing and how everything is affecting our planet. Um, it's a huge, huge amazing fun time um ironically given that we're talking about such terrible things um but it's a really fun party it's like a red uh black tie event everyone dresses up there's a red carpet there's going to be an after party afterward and uh yeah it's going to be a lot of fun and lots a really good opportunity also i think to meet cool like-minded people so if you are going to be anywhere near the la area on december 3rd and you want to come uh, I think they're nearly sold out, but there are still tickets. Uh, just go to the motherfuckerawards.com and uh, grab yourself a ticket and come say hi. It's going to be a lot of fucking fun and cool people. Uh, I think I won't blabber on too much in this episode, although I did, um, I wanted to sort of broach the topic of fear a little bit, uh, fear and uh, living in alignment. Um, I'm going to have someone on the show, I think, <clears throat> soon, and we're going to talk about fear a lot, so I don't want to go into this too much today, but I had this thought yesterday, uh, given that I'm going through such a crazy transition right now, and I don't know, I don't really even remember the last time I wasn't going through a transition, um, but I do feel like I'm going through a tra transition right now, but I'm also really, for the first time in maybe forever, or at least a very long time, living in one, what, in what uh, one might call alignment, which is a little bit of a wooey, annoying word. But uh, point is, I think I'm living in a way where my sort of inner world, my thoughts and beliefs are reflected in my outer world. So I always used to have this disconnect between what I believed and what I wanted and 
what kind of relationship I wanted and what kind of community I wanted to be embedded within. And that was not at all reflected in my outside life, um, mostly because I was afraid, I think, to um, get out of the dynamic that I was in, uh, but also because I wasn't actually sure that what I envisioned was real or possible or that people like me uh, actually existed, not even one person, let alone a whole community full. Um, and so I sort of stayed stuck. And um, while that created an ease in regard to the sort of reflection between my inner and outer world, it didn't lead to what I lead to what I might call comfortable. Um, and I, I was sort of thinking that I think there's this can like understanding or, or assumption rather that when we live in alignment, things will be comfortable. When we live in alignment, there won't be any fear. When we do the thing we want to do in life, it's going to be easy. Um, and I actually think it's the opposite. I think staying stuck is more comfortable than anything else. Of course, it leads to a lot of issues, um, which can come out in many different ways, stress, anxiety, health issues, just like overall depression and unhappiness or grandiosity and overworking and perfectionism to try and distract from the lie that we're living. So that's not easy per se, but I do actually think it's easier. Staying in the dark is easier than coming into one's truth and living in quote unquote alignment. And the reason that is, is because I think when we exit out of a stuck, comfortable position, while we get more things that we want, they have to be won. They have to sort of be fought for. Because what we're doing, in effect, is extracting ourselves from what I think is culturally and societally acceptable. And um, that feels a lot more comfortable than it does to extract ourselves and to say, this is who I am. This is who, what I authentically want to do, um, because often that hits up against conventional wisdom and expectation, and um, you confront a lot of shame and a lot of guilt, and relationships end, and people try and make you feel bad about what you're doing. But most of all, it makes you confront your own shit. You know, I mean, I think all of us understand, like, when we're, let's say, in a toxic romantic relationship and we're doing playing out some codependent game where we're trying to save someone or you know we're with someone who's very troubled and requires a lot of attention or we just play out these toxic patterns with them over and over again what that does is help us to avoid our own shit so if we're constantly focused on a problem we're constantly focused on someone else and they're healing and and sort of working with them then we don't recognize like do i have trust issues like do i have insecurities um, where are the patterns that were created for me when I was young? And then when you're in a healthy situation where you no longer have the luxury of being distracted, all of a sudden, all of your shit comes to light in a really crazy way. I think, I think in part, this is why we stay in stuck situations because we don't want to look at our shadow. We just like do not want to touch that. So it's like a catch 22 because when you decide, fuck it, I'm going to, you know, confront all of these things. I'm going to live in alignment with who I really am and, and what I believe. You have to put in the work of, uh, coming to terms with your shit. And, um, I think that can be applied not just within the, in the context of a romantic relationship, but with everything in general, you know, like 
I was thinking like freedom, we don't just get freedom. No one just hands us an easy life on a silver platter. Unfortunately, we don't live in a world where that's possible. You know, what I think we need as humans innately are things that are not given to us in this world, in this day and age within civilization. It's a, it's a contextual problem, you know? So we want to eat healthy food, but we can't find it anywhere. We want to um, be embedded within and supported by a community, but we, that doesn't exist, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in order to get all of those things, you have to fight for them. And that comes with a lot of discomfort. It means you have to be brave. It means if you're brave, you have to confront the fear. Um, and that's another, you know, disconnect that I think people make all the time is that, you know, people, people will say someone's really brave or courageous and assume that that means they have no fear. And that's not it at all. You know, I think the people that are living, you know, I, th I think for example, like when I was young and still, I, I think I was this person that yeah, I made, <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes and I, 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 I took risks that, you know, made me fail, but I was trying to get somewhere. I, I didn't want to take no for an answer. And I was desperately subconsciously and consciously searching for something. And along the way to get that thing, I was kind of messing up along the way, you know? So, Hey, like I'm going to just get into this relationship because it feels good. Like, I don't care how old this person is. I don't care, you know, what this means in terms of what people think of me. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to follow my intuition. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to take this risk and I'm going to talk openly about that. And that's was sort of seen as threatening to a lot of people. And I think especially when I was younger amongst my like friends, parents, I think I was probably seen as like a bad influence. I was like that crazy chick that, you know, didn't stay in line. And I've come to realize as I've gotten older that, you know, those are the types of people often that end up, I think in the end, getting what they want. It's just that they, they make a lot of mistakes along the way because that's what happens when you take risks, you fail. Because like every poster in elementary school was telling us like you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, you know, like if we're going to get to this place, we have to embrace the fact that it's going to be super scary and that we're going to make mistakes along the way. Because if we don't make mistakes, how do we learn anything? Um, so anyway, I've learned to embrace that crazy young person that made a ton of errors and sort of see that as the recipe for achieving, you know, happiness and, um, being fulfilled later in life, however long that may take. Um, so I think for anyone that's struggling, you know, cause I, I think it, it requires a very healthy and uh, relationship to one's intuition, right? Because we can be in a situation where like something feels off. It feels off in our bodies, just something feels wrong about it or something, or maybe not wrong, but something feels uncomfortable. And I think we need to be in touch with ourselves enough to know, is that discomfort because something's truly wrong here? Or is this a discomfort that uh, the universe is giving to me to invite me to go deeper or to explore something? you know, think about the word trigger. It's like, are we going to be triggered? Is it a trigger that we need to run away from? Is it something that's repetitive? That's, you know, uh, reinforcing a toxic self-sabotaging behavior, or is it 
um, a light switch and uh, something that's inviting us to go into a room and look at something more clearly. Um, like everything in life, it's nuanced, but I think it's really important to recognize that living in alignment does not equal comfort. Um, it's going to be a constant struggle to evaluate and reevaluate and be diligent and dissect and then also to trust and just to relinquish control and to feel safe. Um, but it's by no means going to be easy. And I think if, uh, not to scare anyone away from living in a life of alignment, um, because fuck, it's totally worth it, but it isn't easy. It's, it's challenging in a really beautiful, deep way that I certainly wouldn't trade for anything. Um, but I do think it's important to keep that perspective in mind. And then, and also to celebrate ourselves when we do decide to go deeper, when we do decide to unravel more of ourselves and um, to fight against what doesn't serve us and every little battle we fight and every little battle we win is something a lot of people don't have the luxury or privilege or courage to do. Um, and so even when that little thing is hard and scary and we do it, I think it's important to celebrate that as well. Uh, so I don't know if that has anything to do with my conversation with Kyle. I think maybe it does. We are both to, uh, two millennials trying to figure shit out in the world. Um, it was really nice. I, I think I said on the episode, I don't actually have many male friends that are my own age. Um, so it was really nice to sort of gain his perspective about a lot of the things that I talk about on my show in relation to being, uh, the age that I am in the world that we live in, especially as it relates to sex and the Me Too movement and, um, just sort of figuring out who we are in the world and uh, having a, a male perspective on that was really fun and engaging. And I hope you find it to be the case as well. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. Um, come to the Motherfucker Awards, December 3rd in L.A., themotherfuckerawards.com and enjoy this episode. Um, and if you'd like to support the show, the one thing I always ask is tell your friends, send them an episode. Um, I just want to spread this community as far and wide as possible and, um, bring people together as much as I can. It's a, been a big focus of mine, which I will elaborate on, uh, in next week, next week's episode with a friend of mine with a, a Tara who I recorded an episode with about community and connection and, um, uh, but yeah, that's what I want to do with the show. I just want to, um, generate a community where people feel, um, embedded within something, whether that's in person or through, uh, technology. So you can do that. You can go right now to, uh, if you listen to the podcast on iTunes, I don't know how the other apps work with this, but on iTunes, you can rate the show. You can just hit five stars. It takes literally three seconds. Um, you can hit subscribe and you can leave a little review if you'd like. Um, that helps people, uh, who come across it think, wow, this is actually legit and people listen to this and like it, maybe I should check it out. And it also helps the podcast show up more in search results, which is really hard my, with my podcast. I found that if you don't spell millennial correctly with two L's and two N's, it just like doesn't show up. iTunes doesn't figure it out. Um, so I'm not sure if having more people subscribe or review the show would help with that, but maybe it's worth a shot and it, it's free and it only takes a couple of seconds. So I would really appreciate it. 
Um, but if not, just listening and uh, having you on the other end of, I don't know, this wire, this recording device, your your uh, phone device, your Bluetooth device, that's great too. Um, love you guys. Talk to you on the other side. I'm going to put my shoes back on because... <laughs> I just took my shoes off. <laughs> you got to have my, shoes on for podcasting. No, my feet smell. <laughs> oh. I get weird stress sweats around Mofa's time. Yeah? Yeah, my sweat smells differently. Okay. You ever get like coffee sweat? Totally. Yeah, no, for sure. It's when different I'm than athletic sweat. Out. And yeah. it's just normally like I'll get it in my armpits, but it's just one armpit. Just one? Just, like maybe they'll both sweat, but only one will smell. <laughs> Although I read though, like whichever side your liver is on, that that's actually normal because your liver is like processing all these toxins. So wherever the armpit is closest to the liver, that that happens to smell. Yeah. Warm. No, I, I sweat and it, it smells toxic. It's not like athletic sweat. It's like airplane yeah. sweat. It's, yeah, I know. There's something else coming out of you. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> it's all those unresolved conflicts. Yeah. Just, At least you don't have boob sweat. That's a huge issue. Huh, I didn't know that was a thing. Well, depending on how big your tits are, but what do you know? Yeah. Yeah, you learn it's something like balls, new every day. It's like balls, but like on your chest. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, tits I guess I don't have ball sweat. I get t- boob sweat. Tits are like balls on your chest. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Um You know, I was I was driving over here and I was thinking about the story, uh you know the story of the two fish swimming along and uh two young fish I don't know if I know. I don't think so. It's uh, anyway. But do do tell. It's a non sequitur, but it's just in relationship to um, everyone seeing their own perspective. And I I mean, I won't even tell you. I'll tell you the story. Two young fish swimming along, um, and an older fish swims by, and he looks at the two younger fish and he says, "Hey, boys, how's the water?" And the two young fish keep swimming a little longer, and one turns to the other and says, "What the fuck is water?" There's a David Foster Wallace <laughs> yeah. uh, quote at this speech that he gives, but it's about our inability. I think it's about our inability to see anything else than our own perspective. Oh, for sure. Which maybe goes back to ball sweat. Maybe it goes back to boob sweat. It goes back to a lot of, it seems like, the topics that you're really interested in, largely. Yeah. Well, not only just the topics I'm interested in, but I feel like the entirety of my, like, self-awareness of recognizing the extent to which everything is a projection (laughs) like everything I am uncomfortable with or don't trust someone for or dislike someone for if I really stop and think about it so many of those things are issues I have with myself so it's not just like a differing perspective but also like a complete like yeah projection of my own experience that everyone else is experiencing those things as well yeah um yeah, or like the, uh, you know, I'll give you another little story, like, you know, the, the story of the blind mice touching the elephant, mm. and each one of them describes it as a different shape, the one's yeah. touching the tail and thinks that it's a snake, the other is touching the leg, thinks it's a pillar. Totally. But, uh, yeah, it's really difficult to kind of move out and see that other perspective, and uh, I think podcasting's really good for that. Yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, like, I was talking to Chris about this recently, about not only, you know, our, also our incapacity to fully understand how other people see us versus how we see ourselves. Like, I imagine that everyone, there's like 10 million different versions of me right out there in the world. Like I have this concept of who I am and what I sound like and what I believe in and what my patterns are and all of this. And I feel like people see totally different things in that, which is 
kind of fascinating and yeah but you're also curious about how other people perceive you for example you're you're willing to do the work to kind of etch deeper into that yeah. by doing things like writing by podcasting right. by exposing yourself and seeing which aspects of yourself are um unlikable to certain people what which aspects are likable like that is something that is uh it's actually uniquely hollywood in a way Mm. people find out which aspects of themselves are uh that other people like and which that they don't i'm kind of going off on yeah no I'm, i'm curious if you've had this experience podcasting when i started mine I had met a lot of, a few people at least that had podcast or public personas and oftentimes found that their sort of like public persona had nothing to do with who they actually were as a person. And it was really frustrating and pissed me off and, um, sort of trusting that public representation of themselves and then getting to know them. And when I started the podcast, I, I, I made a point to be like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to be like hundred percent authentic, right? (laughs) And I'm going to share everything and there's nothing off limits. And anytime anyone asks me like, what's one thing about podcasting that you didn't know before you started or a lesson you've learned since you've begun, it's that I was a total idiot to assume that that would be easy. Um, And it's the one thing I think about all the time of like discretion and like how authentic it's not that I'm not authentic, but there's like levels of, sharing and privacy and well um, because then all of a sudden you're if you're sharing everything because you're want to be authentic then you're becoming an, a caricature <laughs> exactly. of the authentic person totally. and you start oversharing because that's your brand and that's yeah. what your brand ends up being is the quote-unquote authentic person which you may as well have your caricature be the asshole or the geek or the sexy slut or any of the other characters that people put out into the world right for sure have you become friends with people who listen like fans of your podcast oh so many yeah yeah they're great yeah well i sort of it's happened to me i mean i I guess it's happened i've only had this podcast for a year um and so i only started meeting those people recently and i had this fear of like fuck they're gonna meet me and be like oh wait she's like way crazier and weirder (laughs) like way more inappropriate uh then she leads on in her podcast and i'm not gonna like her and then like they do and they're super into it and it's just like this strange experience to have like okay i guess speaking of how people see you like i guess i'm doing a pretty good job at representing myself if people still like me in person when i share a lot more yeah yeah well what's it been like for you starting the whole rapport um well, it's in its infancy, so um, but we've gotten some good feedback. Do you know Andrew from Monkey Tooth? Yes. Yeah. He said, he, I was on his podcast recently, and uh, he actually brought up something about this, that he said that he thought that the way this podcast, for those who don't know, has a lot to do with sexuality, gender, eroticism, power. Um, and it's very hard, given that Aaron and I, my friend, are not like scholars of sexuality, right? And so a lot of what we're talking about are personal experiences, thoughts, and or like things we've heard our friends say. Um, So it makes it more difficult to talk about those things in a sort of discretionary way when they're all personal experience. Um, So we we both are sort of like in this place of struggling back and forth between that. Uh, But Andrew uh, said something to me that he he said something about like the way that we were vulnerable the way that we expressed our vulnerability and shared those things was, was graceful, which I thought was not only a very Andrew thing to say, but 
nice to hear because I think that's what we've struggled with the most. It's like where that balance is between, you know, like I, I ask a question all the time to myself, but to others, if it comes up where like, where is the intersection between shame and privacy? Like, where is it that we're saying, oh, I want my, you know, I want some things to be private, my private life, and how much of that is intertwined with, like, I'm too ashamed to say that in a public sphere. Right. Um, and I think that's that's constantly moving, but yeah. Yeah, and you want to be careful of, of you want, you want to know where that line is always, because the worst thing is to then start manipulating it in a way that feels unhealthy. I think though that like for you, what's cool is that you're not talking about it from an authoritative perspective. You're talking about it more from a curious perspective and people tend to like learning from curious learners rather than they do experts because you can kind of remember what it's like. You know, it's not like you've been a professor of this for 50 years and you forget what it's like to have gone through some kind of growth and shift. Like you're talking about these shifts that are happening in your life from a relatively recent place. Right. Uh, and that's really cool. That's a, that's a fun space because then you're, you're kind of just like a journalist reporting on your experience. Uh, but I know what you mean in regards to you know, you don't want to feel like a false teacher of some kind. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we, we actually, we made a decision at the beginning of the podcast that we would, we went through lo lots of different iterations. We re recorded an episode on my podcast just to kind of like feel it out to see how we sort of interacted in that podcast podcast space. Um, and learned a lot from it in terms of what we felt comfortable sharing and what we didn't. And when we started Horrorpore officially, we sort of said at the beginning, like, we're going to tell if when we tell a story, we're going to tell it from the perspective of a friend. It might be a friend's story, but it might be our story. But that's what we feel comfortable doing. So we're not saying something like all women or you know, we know a lot of women because that felt like too making too many assumptions and generalizations. Um, so we just basically said, like, sometimes we're going to tell stories about our friends that happen to be about us. That's um, smart. Yeah. And, and to just be honest about that, like that way we're, we're doing it that way to protect ourselves and the people in our lives. Right. Because sex often involves other people. So like that's not just telling a personal story. It's telling a personal story about yourself often and one or two or three other people. Um, but that way we felt like we could protect ourselves in that way, but also be honest about the fact that we were protecting ourselves. Yeah. It's also a more humble way to do it. I actually have a bad verbal tick that I'm trying to get over that I say on podcasts a lot where I say, you know, a lot of people, mm. da -da 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 -da. a lot of people, da -da -da, which is just this blanket general statement. And it's such a better way to start off a story by saying, I know a, f a person who... Which, and it's actually more powerful because it's more specific. Right. So good for you for learning that one quickly. Yeah. And I'm sure there will be more. I mean, I, I, I bet you feel this way too. I just said this to a friend who was a fan before, uh, who I now consider a friend that I, one of the many reasons I love podcasting is because I, I literally feel like it makes me a better person. <laughs> like it's like you're constantly having to kind of level up and be like, why am I doing that? Or, or, or I have a fucking conversation with someone and I go into this whole space of like, oh my God, wow, I never thought about this thing. And I'm learning so much about myself and the world. And it's like weird, selfish therapy in a way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
I'm still not comfortable doing it either. Whenever there, I mean, there's moments of comfort, but it definitely levels up the the conversation. Like right now I want to bring the most interesting conversation possible, which is a good exercise to do. Right. You know, it's like, uh, rather than just going for a walk, like you're kind of running, like your, your mind is running, trying to figure it out. Like the way that I describe podcasting sometimes to people is like, it's like this, this, um, process of trying to maintain total presence with what the other person's saying and simultaneously skipping ahead to totally. try and think where the conversation might be going. For sure. And like making sure if someone like goes off track that you sort of loop it back around and keep a theme. Yeah. 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 So what uh, have been some of the experiences for you that have been most uncomfortable to share publicly? Like what have been some of those those podcasts where you're like, whew, I just said that shit. But then maybe you get that kind of feedback that's really powerful and um, and, and supportive. Um, well, I think the sexuality piece, uh, for sure, uh, I think it, it, it aligns with anything that's sort of the most taboo in society in general. Um, I think I did a, a podcast recently sort of walking, I've had a very intense journey with like physical health issues, which for me, I recognized were like 95% based in my emotional and mental well-being. Like those things are very intertwined. So I was like sick because I was unhappy. Um, That's and, some hippie bullshit right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mind-body connections and charged <laughs> crystals, Northern California yeah, exa- exactly. bullshit. Right. And it's, and people get very defensive and, and look like this is, this was my experience and I would, you know, it was very clear to say that disclaimer at the beginning um, that this was just one of many versions for me, it was, uh, really intense and clear, like the extent to which these things were intertwined, but I felt badly because, you know, people don't want to, I don't want to get on the microphone and, and say something where, and p- that people hear is like, Oh, so I gave myself cancer, right? Like that's not, and I recognize that that's a reaction that people can have. Um, and to me, it was just like, let's engage more in this conversation. It's like sort of how I feel about, the vaccine thing, like, can we just talk about it? Like, like, why why isn't that okay? Um, so that's what I try to do on the podcast a lot. I mean, when I get, when I'm pitching to a guest or something I say, or before we start talking, I say like, I want to have the conversations on this podcast that people are normally too afraid to have and that they don't have. So like, let's get rid of like the black and white, uh, conventional opinions and like just focus on the nuanced paradoxical, space where I think where is where the real answer lies anyway. Okay. So what have been some of those moments for you? Like what have been some of those subjects that you've talked about and been afraid to talk about, but have felt good too? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I started the podcast during the me too movement. Um, and I started the podcast for many, many reasons, but one of them was that I had so many opinions and so much to say about that where I didn't feel like I fit into any camp uh, in terms of like the public opinion about this on either side. I I fit somewhere in the middle. Um, And I started posting like Facebook rants because I didn't know what else to do with my energy. And I would get all these messages from women being like, I don't have the balls to say what you're saying. And I'm not even going to comment on your post publicly, but like, thanks for saying it like in this private message. I stand in silent solidarity yeah, with exactly. you, sister. Um, and then I started thinking like, okay, well, for whatever reason, I guess I do have the balls to say this. And 
it seems like people are really appreciating it. I got the it. sweaty boobs to say this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Big sweaty boobs. Let's yeah, do this. Let's do so what, what, give me people yeah. some fodder about what some of those opinions were. Yeah. Well, um, I felt that a lot of the rhetoric around women, uh, were framing, you know, and the, these issues are hard to talk about, but women and or femininity in sort of a victimized weak space. Um, and we weren't able to see nuance between like, okay, we, we talked about this, I think to you the other day, that thing that women do where like they start flirting with you and like rubbing themselves all over you and like, you know, sitting on your lap. And then you kind of like try to make a move or touch them in a sexual way. And they say like, how dare you? Like, no, that's not what I'm here. That, what are you doing? Like you're going too fast. Um, and obviously this is a very, like, there's lots of different iterations of that experience and that scenario, but I think many times women aren't taking responsibility for their actions. Um, I think women have a lot more power than their... I have a friend who doesn't <laughs> yeah. take responsibility for her actions. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know it's super hard to talk about, yeah. right? Yeah. Keep it going, though. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Facebook rant. Yeah. So, yeah, so that sort of putting the, not putting the, you, you know, and this applies to, I think, multiple things in life that we can accept responsibility without taking the blame. Like those things aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and I know and this is something I'm happy to say personally, like I've totally done those things. I've totally put myself in toxic situations with men who didn't treat me well and then blame them for not treating me well. Like I'm a grown adult. Like I drove to that person's house and like put myself there. He wasn't physically <laughs> keeping me there. Sure. Was I, you know, did I come from a background of being like emotionally abused and didn't have the, the wherewithal to, to navigate that situation maturely? Yeah, sure. Maybe. But like, where's the threshold of like, I'm an adult and I can take care of myself. Um, and without a doubt, like it takes two to tango. And if I opted out of that scenario, it wouldn't have been able to continue. And for so much of my life, I kept opting in and being like, that was toxic. It's like, well, sure. Get the fuck out of it. Like right. you have the capacity to do that. So it was that, it was that like, you know, or that phrase, I don't know if you've heard it, like when you point a finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Ooh, that's deep. Yeah. That's better than the fish story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I, wherever I caught myself playing the blame game or being angry, it became impossible for me not to recognize my own role and participation in those things, um, which is challenging. It's challenging to confront why we make decisions that are not great for us or why we put ourselves in harm's way. But like, I want to be a better person. I don't want to get in front of this microphone and talk a big game and not actually be walking the talk. Uh, so I like have to do that. And I feel like we should all just be a little more humble about like, yeah, well, there's a lot of people all fucking a lot of people. <laughs> God damn. I have a friend. <laughs> so is, easy to do. Yeah. It's so easy to do. Is that better? Is that the truth? I mean, is I it a know. lot of people? No, I'm not friends with these kinds of people that I'm <laughs> yeah. about to talk about, but I'm making a stereotype about people. I, I'll, I'll make a stereotype about Americans that yeah. a lot of Americans are at this simmering six level of stress. And I will speak very personally that right now we're get, we're about to do the motherfucker awards. I am at that stress level and it's not super healthy for me to be in this state all the time. I'm not getting a ton of sleep. 
I'm corresponding with way too many people on a daily basis and I don't feel very relaxed or centered and or reflective at all. Mm -hmm. So if shit is happening to me, I have an immediate reaction, which is to blame them and justify what it is that I'm doing. And I can notice it because a lot of times I live a pretty darn relaxed I mean, yeah, I got a podcast. And I, like a sur- surfer I in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Like, I, You're like the stereotype of I a only, relaxed person. Yeah, I only answer to the tides. Yeah. But, you know, it makes me a little bit more relaxed about what's going on. And I notice just in this time right now how quickly my mind is shifting towards justifying. So uh, I'm clearly relating that just to culture in general. Yes. Uh, I mean, you are you're like the least American-American woman I know. Thank you. That's yeah. the best compliment I've ever received. But I mean, Chris talks about this a lot, just yeah. how all the different cultures that we see and, and the different levels of relaxation that we feel within it. Well, I certainly didn't all, I certainly wasn't always like this. I mean, I was the most stressed out. That's why I was so sick. Hmm. Like I was completely, I just didn't, I grew up thinking like, I think I know who I am and what I like and what I believe, but there's clearly no place for me in this world. Like I, I don't know what's going on here, but I just somehow like popped out of my mom as like some strange alien. And, um, I'm just going to have to like learn how to fit into the sort of status quo because I want friends and I want a relationship and I want to be comfortable. Uh, and that's what I did. I just settled and settled and settled because I just made the assumption that there weren't other people like me. Like there was just never going to be a place that I felt at home. Mm. Um, and then I think I started to realize like in my late twenties, like that wasn't true and there was, but in order to get there, I had to like get out of the stuck place that I was in. Um, which is when all hell broke loose. But yeah, I, I, I was a mess. I mean, like I didn't even, I was so like far gone that like I was so stressed, but didn't even, I didn't think I was stressed. That yeah. was just normal. <laughs> it's just normal. When yeah. you're always at a simmering six, you don't really know. Yeah. Um, have you always had an empowered relationship with kind of sluthood or did that, was there like a moment when you were introduced to those ways of thinking? And I don't know how yeah. you would reference it. Yeah. Or I mean, how you would define it. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I, I just go on my podcast, call, call, call my guest sluts all the time. That's, yeah. that's kind of that's my good. MO. Well, you should also like whore. I like whore. Whore. Slut. Yeah. And it's interesting. Aaron and I were trying to define like, why is that? Um, wh- where is that distinction for us? To me, whore feels more empowered. Slut feels more like complainy yeah, yeah or just like or like slippery like i'm like a slippery slut yeah, going like, along on a slip and slide i don't know what's yeah, happening where it's like i'm a whore yeah like whores are having like awesome sex <laughs> yeah. sluts are like whores got deep having roots. a lot of yeah. not so great sex yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like whores are relaxed sluts are on edge um it's weird though just with like words like totally. the like an s word just like slut feels more passive whereas whore is like a it would be like a battle cry or the whore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, obviously some of that I think is influenced by the culture. I think whore is for the most part referencing like professional sex workers and slut is an insult that's thrown at women who uh, either are fucking lots of people or are embodied in their sexuality. I wonder what the etymology of slut is. Yeah. Yeah. I need to look that up for sure. Um, well the whole, how, uh, when if if I always felt embodied in sluthood, uh, is that what you called it? <laughs> sluthood, <laughs> um, slutdom. Uh, yeah, I I grew up with 
pretty progressive parents and my dad's gay. Um, and although I didn't know, I, I, I can't say that I always knew they were open about sex, right? Like I didn't have the awareness about that, but I know now that they were, um, so how I always described it is that I always felt very embodied in my sexuality. I wasn't afraid of sex. I, I liked flirtation. I liked talking about it. I like went online like bef- way before I ever had sex to like learn how to give a blow job and then taught all my friends. And like, uh, I was just always into it and fascinated by it and didn't feel ashamed of it. And Aaron and I talk about that. We both had this experience. I think it's that way for a lot of women that although society deems sex and sexuality, especially with women as like shameful or dirty or not okay, that to us, the words we always use are like that it felt the most pure and clean. It felt the most authentic to us, something we could identify with really truthfully and feel it like deep intuitively within ourselves. Um, and so I always felt that way. And then at one point in, I don't know how old I was, but I had a fight with a friend and it escalated. I mean, we were young, like middle school, maybe it escalated. And she, her last insult, like to like end the whole thing was like, and you're such a fucking slut. And then someone, I think another friend of mine asked her later, like, why did you call on you? Like, I don't think I'd even kissed a boy at this point. Like, like I was, thank you. That's nice. Well, yeah. right. It was like this weird That's like thing. When, of, when I'm like, you're not even American. Yeah. You're like, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> thank you. But yeah, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, Total. I didn't totally receive it that positively then. Uh, and a friend of mine asked her, like, why did you call Anya a slut? And she said something like, because she wears spaghetti, spaghetti strap tank tops. It was like, what? Like, so does everyone. And it was this weird experience of like, I know she said that to insult me and I'm kind of ashamed and embarrassed. And it, however, she picked up on something that I feel. And like, whatever this thing is, I feel internally, like I now understand that other people are noticing it which led to a lot more awareness around like women being afraid I was going to steal their boyfriends, even though that never happened. Like people thinking I was quote unquote, like slutty as in promiscuous, even though I was in like nonstop monogamous relationships and had sex with very few people for a really long time. Um, it was not, it was more of an identity than it was like an experiential type of a thing. Um, and, and so only sort of relatively recently have I, I just think I'm old enough and have enough experience and context and words to where I, it all has sort of come together. You know, what's funny is, uh, since I've gotten older and had more and more conversations with women about sexuality and growing up, it's like, there's this whole competition going on between women. What you were just saying, like women always afraid that you're going to steal their boyfriend. Yeah. That guys are so oblivious to. Like, we have no idea of all of the inner subtle workings between of competitive female prowess. Yeah. Like, guys, we're, we'll just, like, push each other and punch, punch each other in the face. And if that doesn't happen, we're cool. Right. Do you feel, though, like, or thinking back on it in the past when you were growing up or now, like, I always, because I always feel this with men, like, if you're able to tell that some women are like embodied in their sexuality more than others or like just the oh, way yeah. that woman carries themselves. Like you can kind of tell that she'd be like a good fuck versus for sure. someone that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's ironically like, you know, some of the most beautiful women I've ever had sex with were some of the worst ladies. <laughs> yeah. I because think it's they were totally so uptight not related. About it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. totally not related. Yeah. 
and yeah, I do think that there's uh, a sense that you can get pretty quickly if you pay right. attention to it. Yeah, and I think so. I think that's the it's, thing. It's right? I, it's similar mm-hmm. to like if you could tell someone would be a good back masseuse in a way. It's like just. I don't you, know if I have that yeah, skill. You don't have that. It's, I think it's just comfort in your own body. Oh, right. That's a okay. big part of it. It's right. just like, do you understand? how a body works and are you afraid of your own physicality for sure yeah i do think that plays a role because i've always like been confused because i feel like i'll you know i have these moments all the time you know being in like a i had this moment recently i was in a drugstore so like the most like american superficial socially constructed strange environment in the world just like sterile terrible fluorescent <laughs> lights exactly like with just like weird all the employees are and... just sound like death when yeah. they say thank you yeah and there was this guy in front of me this black guy and he he I, it was only two of us in line and he kind of looked back at me and i looked at him and there was that moment of like some sort of knowing of like if we were in a different time in a different setting like in a totally different environment like in the woods hundreds of thousands of years ago like we'd fuck right now like that's totally what would happen like we saw that in each other we made that connection and here i am trying to like not make that super obvious and like look away and like browse the mint selection um but meanwhile there's like this palpable energy i feel like that's like pulsing and and i think uh I, I think I've always been very okay with and aware of that. And that's what like other women are picking up on that they, they feel threatened by or that other men are picking up on and come over and want to talk to me or something. Um, it's not unlike uh, when people are nervous talking in front of uh, crowds, they'll talk really quickly because they're afraid of that awkward space between. Mm. But comedians really learn to own that awkward space and yeah. they make it theirs. Use it, yeah. They use it. Uh, similarly, yeah, if you like see someone in a drugstore and you have that little f- flicker, even in bars, like it's, it's really m- most people, <laughs> a lot of people, I have a fucking friend. No, I mean, I'll just say I do this. Like I, I'll have that kind of, like I'll, I'll see a woman and I'll f- have that like, oh, that's sexy. And then I'll have the, uh, like the look away yeah. moment, yeah. right? But there's nothing better than like a damn good meditation in the morning when you're feeling super grounded and you look and they look and you're like, cool. Yeah. Sweet. Like it's, that's a perfect way of owning that space between that's really tough to do. Yeah. What is that? What is it that we're afraid of to even make eye contact with each other? Well, I mean, and I... Because everyone does it. I mean, that's another thing is that there's just this false premise that like, if you're in a relationship, you're not checking out anyone else. (laughs) Like that's, and that's just, I think that maybe it it all comes from that premise that you should feel, we believe that you should feel shame if you have any kind of attraction to another person or you have that flirtatious moment, right? So you're looking away from that shame. For it's weird sure. that when you feel shame, you actually look away. It's a physical reaction that you have. Yeah, I think that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect of it is like that I don't, an expectation, right? So like if I look at a man like that, which is, this is also I think a very American thing. If I look at someone like that, and I'm, people have told me like, <laughs> some friend of mine recently said, Something about like your hungry eyes. That's what he said. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I was like, shit, you totally caught me. Like I thought like nobody really noticed that. It was just this kind of sly thing. 
But like, I look at someone like that and I think depending on where I am in the world, that is, uh, received in a multitude of different ways. So like, I'll be walking through, like I'm eating at a restaurant and I'm wearing, let's say a particularly sexy outfit. And I walk to the bathroom and I'm passing all these people on the way to the bathroom. And like, I wish we lived in a society where like we could just me and a guy or me and a girl, whatever, we could just have that moment of like, fuck yeah, like you're hot, I'm hot, like we totally fuck in a different situation. But that doesn't mean like I'm asking for you to come over here and ask for my number. I wouldn't be offended if that happens. I'm one of the few people that like likes being catcalled. I'm just like, hell yeah, I'm hot. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate you noticing. Um, To me, that's not offensive. Like I... I can be sexy and, um, attractive and also like smart and have self-worth and intelligent. Like I don't feel offended when someone, because I don't think it's purely physical. I think it's about embodiment. So it's like, if someone's picking up on that and I'm really proud that I'm embodied in that way, fuck yeah. Like, thank you. I'm going to notice it in someone else too. Um, so I think it's expectation. I think it's like, I'm like in the drugstore, I was afraid to hold his eyes too long because I didn't want him to get the impression that I wanted him to come over and ask for my number. Not that I would have minded, but, you know, I think I would have felt badly like I was leading him on or something. So one uh, conversation that's front and center in the Me Too movement is that... Some guys think, well, if you're dressing that way, if you're acting that way, then you deserve what's coming to you. You're asking for it. You're out at a bar late at night in a slutty outfit, and that happened to you. Like, shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I, 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 I think that takes it a little farther than I would believe. But if I'm out at a bar wearing a slutty outfit, it's the same way that I feel about people who post really like sexy photos on Instagram and then get mad when like Instagram takes it down or someone gets offended. Like stop sexualizing my body. It's like, what are you talking about sexualizing your body? Like your body is sexual like that. And that's totally cool. Like if Instagram takes down my photo, like I I hope it's because it's a sexual, (laughs) I hope it's for a sexual reason, not like because you've somehow interpreted my topless photo set like of course it's sexual it'd be like, worse if like the engineer at instagram was like she's not hot enough we gotta take this yeah, down <laughs> it's so bizarre like i'm not ashamed of the fact that my body is looked at in a sexual way i'm just not ashamed of that at all like i'm totally into it that doesn't mean that i'm not aware of you know people taking advantage of women that there is sexual violence against women, but these things can coexist, you know, like I'm not going to say that every single time a man is turned on by me, that that's violent. It's that's insane. Um, so I think where I don't often agree with women is like, I should be able to wear this outfit and do all this. And none of that at all should tell you that, you know, I'm available or interested or, you know, you may not be available or interested, but, but don't get mad at someone for asking. Like, you're beautiful. You're hot. Why? Like, wouldn't you go up to you? Like, what the fuck? You know? (laughs) And, and yeah. And it's okay to say no. I think where it gets tricky is if you say no and the person keeps pushing, right? Like in that case, yeah, that's not 
acceptable, but it's the same reason I don't get mad when someone's catcalling me. They're just saying, hey, hot stuff. They're not coming up to me and pushing me down on the ground and raping you. It's like, I don't agree that marijuana is a gateway drug. I don't believe that a compliment on my appearance is, is violent. I, like, it's not always going to get there. It could, but that's not a rule. Fuck yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I would bet that you've also gotten a lot better at saying no since you've also gotten better at knowing what your sexual comfort is in the yes zone. Yeah. I, right? I yes. Maybe not. <laughs> no, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't say no yeah, to I don't, many I don't things. say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you, I, it's just an important point that I want to punctuate of the like, no, no, yes, yes, and just owning whatever decision you're going to make. Right. Yeah, and managing that space of what we were talking about before. Like, I'm not going to, and I've done that before too. I've said to a guy, hey, I think you're cool. Like, I'm not really available in a sexual array right now, but I'd like, like let's hang out as friends. And I, I had this was this situation with someone. It was hilarious because it, it just totally, like, put me in my own place. Like, I said this to him, hey, I'm not available. I think you're cool. Like, maybe sometime down the line, I'm not not attracted to you, but, like, just my situation in life right now is that I'm this isn't going to happen. But come over, let's hang out. So he comes over. My, like, apartment is, like, dimly lit with, like, mood lighting, which is just the norm for me, but I started to, like, exit out of my own experience and see it from his. Like, I wasn't wearing an overly sexy outfit, but, like, I looked good. And we went to this really fucking fancy ass restaurant in Topanga because there really aren't many restaurants here, but it's like so fucking fancy. And like we basically went on a date and then we're talking in my car and like I talk very openly about sexuality too, which is another thing. Like, oh, I'm just going to talk about how much I like to have sex, but don't you dare think about fucking me, you know? Um, so it it really called attention, like especially because I think a lot of women want guys to convince them of a thing. So it's like, Oh no, like I couldn't like, no, like you don't really want me. Do you, you know, like, no, you know, and they want men to go after them and that's where it gets really dangerous. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I even, and it's, you know, one thing that I, I learned, this was a, a, a big epiphany for me in my, uh, dating life is that there's a moment when the, woman decides that she's going to have sex with you, which is way before you realize that she's going to have sex with you. So there's this like, Hey, I'm going to keep trying for a while. And like, <laughs> I don't know if this is working, but like, she's already decided like a yes right. or no way prior yeah. to that. And then she just gets to sit back it's and like a, watch it's, you it's, like perform. Totally. It's, it's like a Supreme court decision. It's like decided way before anyone sits down and yeah. makes their pleas. Yeah. You know, all the judges are like, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll hear you out, but I've, I've already decided. Yeah, totally. I just want to see you do this. <laughs> I'm curious. I don't actually have a ton of male friends my own age. I'm curious how you've navigated this, like, Me Too space. Like, what your thoughts have been on it. Um, and whether you feel, like, emasculated. Because that's the other thing I always think about, like, emasculating men. Like there's toxic masculinity, but then there's also good masculinity. And like, let's not pretend that like, that's not okay. And expect men to just be more like women or be more feminine. Yeah. I've tried to just maintain curiosity around it. Uh, it's really easy to get, um, 
on one side of the fence or the other. And this is such a nuanced conversation. I think that you lose when you do that. Yeah. But, um, you know, for what, like, I've had conversations with women since the Me Too movement where they say, you know, have you ever thought about, uh, like, how many times have you been walking to your car late at night and had to get your keys out and you're clutching your keys to make sure that you can get in your car really quickly if someone comes up behind you? I'm like, oh, I've, I've never really had that experience. And like, that's our experience all the time. Or, oh, how many times have you been on a date and you text a friend, hey, I'm going to call you at this time. And if I don't, like, I'm going to share my location with you. Like shit like that. Then I was like, whoa, I had no idea. Wow. That's, that's a dramatically different experience than I have. And it's rare that I'm physically afraid uh, because I think that I could get away or overpower someone. Right. So just taking on that other perspective, like the, you know, the two young fish swimming along what's water, like, wow, there's a whole different experience of water for women. Yeah. And that's worth noting. Um, I've also had friends who have been called out in the me too movement for what I see as faux pas or just misunderstandings and have lost their jobs, lost their careers, like cannot be, um, public facing people anymore because they have just gotten thrown under the bus and no one is willing to take them back on. Uh, and I think that's fucked up to not have there be recourse or any kind of, um, jury involved in these decisions. Um, I think that's a really dangerous space to, to get into. So there's that yeah. also. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that it's as, as far as the emasculation goes, um, gosh, do I feel emasculated since the Me Too movement? I definitely feel like your voice is more important than mine in this. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, like for a long time, it was the guys' voices that were more important in society. And people were like, hey, you being a guy, use your privilege to speak up on this. Good on you. Right? Like there, there are times in, in throughout history when different voices are just listened to more. And right now, your voice is listened to more than mine in this subject, right? So in a way, it like, it almost feels like it doesn't matter what I have to say on this subject. And the best way that I could go about it is to tr just try and ask questions. Um, the final point that I, ha I think, though, that's just a, I think this is a real miss for our culture, um, is that we, we operate under this premise that we're totally moral beings. And if we ever make, if we ever do something unethical that, or if a person does something unethical, that they should be subject to just get X'd out of society canceled. and our world. Yeah. Cancel, yeah. cancel them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was that, there was a black mirror episode. I don't know if you saw this where I haven't, but it was I've in the future and, and a way that they punish people is by, literally blocking them. So you would be in a, everyone has these glasses on, uh, and, or, or it's just some kind of, um, way that they see the world and you're, and if you get in trouble, you'll just be a blurry version of yourself to them and you can't actually communicate. And I think that that's a really, a really dangerous place to 
live as a society. And I think that uh, it's like, we all make mistakes, right? So where is room for apology in this whole conversation too? Yeah, and, well, and how do we know. accept apology? Totally. Right? And and this kind of gets back to the, like, the simmering six of stress. Like, when you're fucking just stressed out and overworked, it's really hard to have that healing time happen. Um, and I think that that's the place that we need to get to because guess what? No one's perfectly moral. If you, if, if you are like, Hey, let me see your phone. Let me, t- let me check out your browser history, bro. Yeah. Well, and like, what, is how- moral? Like, and what is moral? And what is moral? What is immoral? What is, you know, and where do we, so it's, again, these are all me- messy things, but I think that to come at it from a puritanical place is not smart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, like one of the many things that gets me in trouble is I totally disagree that my voice is more important. I think I'm totally, I I totally agree with the fact that throughout history, my voice was relegated to a less important position, but I don't, I, I, I say this in, in many different ways throughout the podcast. Like, I don't think the correction is always the 180 degree opposite. So like, okay, because you've spoken more or because your opinions heard more, the answer is like the future is female. No, the future is both of us. Like there are men and women. And like, we, I think that place of switching and like, didn't we get to this place because we, there was some sort of like power issue. We were, you know, men were uh, taking advantage of women. Like, I don't want to take advantage of my position in culture right now and be like, well, you shut up and I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm just going to talk at you and express my opinion. Right. How, how a group handles their power reveals who they really right. are. And I, and or how a person, totally. they, they, they say one of my favorite quotes is power doesn't corrupt power reveals. Yeah. For sure. I mean, and and two things, like I think I don't know how to get to an apology or to accept an apology if I'm not going to have a conversation. Like, I don't want someone to just apologize. Like, let's actually talk about it. Maybe maybe I made a a wrong assumption about something that you did. Maybe I have something to apologize for or reflect on. Like, I'm always that person that wants, like, I would love, I would pay money to sit in a room with Louis C.K. and talk to him about that. Like, fuck, I would do anything. Like, and I don't understand why we're not brave enough, why we just have to say, you don't have a right to have an opinion. You don't have a right to give your side of the story. You know, why can't we, that's a, it's a vulnerable space to be, to engage in those discussions. And I, I'm very, I've always been very interested in, in gender and femininity and masculinity, both in terms of like gender, but also just like energetically. And I think, what we've seen in our world to date is in post agriculture is this like, um, over importance, uh, and the only valuable, um, type of power is masculine power, which is like control and leadership. And, um, I think we've relegated feminine power, which to me is vulnerability and relinquishing control and trust and all these very sort of quiet, calm (laughs) forms of power. Um, it, it totally makes sense that those things aren't valued in this patriarchal culture. Um, but what I don't want to do is try and correct or fix the patriarchy by just assuming those same masculine forms of power. Like for me to reclaim femininity, to reclaim the importance of femaleness and however way you want to see it is to exemplify and embody what I find are the most powerful feminine attributes and hope 
and trust that I'm not going to be taken advantage of. And if I am, I'm still going to keep going. I'm not going to get angry and be, you know, I'm not going to embody a man within myself because that's the only way to work through this. Like I'm going to embody what I feel is my own power, which I think like, I wish more women were doing that. If we, if we could say like, Hey, we're not going to play your game. We're going to play our game. And our game is one of tenderness and nurturance and community and softness and trust. And let's bring men into that space and let's like play there, not let's just get angry and mad and point fingers. And like, I just don't see yeah, not just, just try is. and neuter society. Right. Exactly. That's, uh, that's the place that you don't want to get yeah, to. Yeah. And poor, and, and I look, I'm up in a privileged, privileged position. I, was raised by, I think, a man who embodied femininity and masculinity in a really healthy way. Like, I think gay men are some of the most masculine, brave, courageous men ever, and yet are sweet and tender and feminine and emotional. Um, so I think I, like, you know, many people, there's a lot of people out there who were raised by men that weren't like that. And so they have this toxic understanding of men. Um, but that isn't all men. And I refuse to stereotype all men as that. Um, and what I, what I try to do is exemplify a version of masculinity or a version of men that's like beautiful and complementary to women. And, um, and, and I think the other point you made about the holding the car key thing, like, I mean, I've, I, I would say that the amount of violence that I've experienced is, again, probably pretty mi minimal. So I come from a privileged position. My mother, however, was raped in the middle of Central Park in the daytime. So I very much like grew up with knowing that was possible. Um, and for sure, when I walk to my car at night, I think about where I am and what time it is. But I don't I don't necessarily blame anyone for that. Um, and I think like, I'm just a, you know, I live in a, in a society and in a world where I'm not protected in the ways that I would be if I lived in some sort of like tribal environment in a small community, right? Like I'm in a huge fucking city. This isn't normal. I blame the city and I blame civilization and I blame society. I don't blame men per se. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you've read, uh, Chris talks about it a lot that, that there's this paper called like, it's just a penis, yeah, which, uh, talks about like how rape is viewed uh, cross-culturally in many different ways. So it's not like penises are not seen as dangerous. Rape is seen as like a funny joke on the man. Like, how could he hurt me? It's just a penis. Like how, you know? Um, and I think that's really important to understand too, our framing of things. Uh, so that's the other piece that I sort of fall on the outside of in terms of the me too movement is like how much of this is perspective. And if we could just shift our perspective a little bit, like how much would that change? Yeah. Um, yeah. Then how much is Louis CK jacking off really a threat? Well, and like those women weren't, I get it. He's in a position of power. So fine. They want to like succeed in the industry, but you weren't, they weren't tied up. They weren't, you know, they didn't have a gun to their head. So leave, you know, then tell the story if you want, but don't sit there and watch him do it and wait and then be like, how could you do it? Like leave the room. Um, and, and especially like for me too, hashtag me too, you know, 
I am in a position of power. I am privileged in this sense. Like I'm a white woman who uh, has a leg up in many different ways. And so if I experience sexual harassment and can afford to, let's say, lose my job, well, I better step up and say something about it so that someone who can afford to do that, like they can keep their job. And I've been in that situation too. Um, Like I feel like it's my obligation (laughs) to use, you know, my privilege and not say like, well, how come you didn't do it? I get that not everyone can, but I certainly can. And the least I can do is just use my power in the way that it was given to me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. All really interesting points. I I think also just going back to kind of underscore what I was saying about uh, my voice not being as important. I think society views my voice as not being important, but I think that uh, stepping up for truth um is always important and always uncomfortable and always very brave. And that's why I agree with you. I think that gay dudes are super manly because they're out of the, if they're out of the closet and they're speaking their truth, like that's a fucking scary, brave thing to pull off. And I mean, I see it from growing up, uh, in a surfer bro culture where, I had so many nights in high school and college where everyone's getting wasted and some dudes, you know, I see him taking advantage of this wasted girl and he's wasted too and everyone's drunk and like, it would just be way too uncomfortable to come in and be like, hey, dude, she's too drunk. You need to back off. And the amount of times that like, you just see those situations happen and then you reflect like, Hey, was that okay? I don't know. Like there's that, that there's that discomfort too. Like as a guy standing up to other guys in a drunk situation, because the elephant in the room is that most of this shit is happening when people are drunk. Right. For sure. It's very rare that like a sober guy is going to be super aggressive. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's out at bars. It's when people are, six drinks deep that this kind of behavior happens. And it's really uncomfortable as a guy to stand up to other guys. And I think that that is just as important as a woman standing up to, uh, illogical, you know, something that you view as illogical happening in the me too movement, as well as, uh, as well as a guy, it's just hard to be honest the whole time, but that's where coming at it from a, a centered and true place is really important. Yeah. So I have a friend (laughs) who was in this, a woman, um, she was at a party. She was really drunk. There was a guy, he was really drunk. They were flirting, but she just felt at some point, like I am like too drunk to even function. Like I'm going to go upstairs and lie down. And he kind of followed her up there and they got in bed together. And he said something like, Oh, I'm just going to like, I think he tried to make out with her. He's like, Oh, I'm just too tired. Like, I just want to sleep. Like you can sleep here next to me, but like, I just got to lie down. I'm just going to like, like it's too much. And he's drunk and she's drunk. And at one point she wakes up and he's inside of her. And in that moment, she was just like, Oh, like, what are you doing? Like I said, like, (laughs) you know, I'm too drunk. I think they had made out too. So it wasn't as if he was just like coming onto her. It was like, there was a lot of sexual stuff going on. And at some point she was like, I'm too drunk. I'm going to lay down. They both kind of laid down and like half sleep slept and then his dick was inside her. She doesn't totally remember how that happened. Was she awake? Was she not awake? And when she woke up, she was just like, oh, like this guy, like I, you know, of course this is what's going on, whatever. And they left and 
And then I think many years later, she went to see a therapist or maybe sooner than that. And she told this story and the therapist was like, you were raped. She was like, well, uh, okay. Like that's not really how I experienced it. Like I think it was like a drunken sloppy situation with two horny young people and we were making out and he was drunk and I was drunk and like, I didn't feel violated. So am I supposed to just like assume your, your, you know, um, understanding of what happened, even though it's not how I, right. So like who decides, you know, who decides what's moral, who decides what is rape and what isn't like, I think these, we have to think a little bit more, we just need to ask more questions. Yeah, I mean, that's like I think that like if there's a pragmatic solution to this, it's if you're if you're a guy and you're going up to a girl, you know, and you guys are flirting, like just ask, hey, do you want me to kiss you? Yeah, and like girls, you got to tell us, right? You got to tell us, and let's just keep communicating through the whole situation, right? Not having all these crazy assumptions. Yeah, like because each one of these situations is very different, and there's a lot of behavior from guys that is super fucked up and really should be called out. And I think that's probably the best, the best thing that's happened from the me too movement is a lot of that behavior. There's just a light shined on it now that wasn't before. Yeah. Uh, and that, and it's a lot of that behavior that, as I said, like in high school and college, I'm like, yeah, I was at a lot of those parties. I don't think I did anything, but like, okay. (laughs) Like, okay. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good that we're talking about all this stuff now, right? Yeah. And let's have these kinds of conversations and just not assume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but shame's a weird, it's, it's, shame's just a deep subject. It's cool that you kind of take it on uh, head first because, you know, we're doing the motherfucker awards, right? And there's, it's a, it's a, it's a joke where there is offense involved and there's, shame involved. And I I do think that there's a place for shame. I don't think that it's just about alleviating it, but I think that it should be placed on people that are again and again, engaging in sociopathic behavior. Uh, and there are a lot of people and a lot of systems in our culture that have, you know, like just, uh, corporations, for example, that engage in sociopathic business models. And I think that we should use the, the very powerful, tool of shame to point it in the right places. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, how do you feel shame is embodied in the motherfucker awards, but I get it. Shaming the companies, shaming the company. Shaming. Yeah. 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 It's hard. Cause when you first said that I was, I felt like this visceral disagreement. Like I always feel like wherever there is sort of mass public shaming to me is a, a flag or like a, a clue that something's wrong and that I want to like look at it more but I would have to agree that in this case, I, I can't really find anything like beneficial or positive to say about like Coca-Cola. <laughs> right. But, well, and, and also what we, we view shame as only an, uh, uh, the, uh, only a, a, an emotion that you shouldn't operate from. Right. But I think that shame, just like anger is, it's a place that you don't want to live in, but can be a very useful tool in certain situations. Um, and I think that like, yeah, so, so I, I think that it's just about shifting where we want to point that tool. Um, and then when, when is there reconciliation? Like, do we, you know, let's just take it out to like a corporation that has a sociopathic business model. When do we, um, 
when do we accept that apology right. from them, right? Right. Well, and it's also, I think, speaks to like this greater debate I think we have all the time around like what's the best strategy for making a difference? Is it like anger and shaming or is it like love and light? You know, I think there are people that you asked to be a part of the Motherfucker Awards and they were just like, no, I don't want to be a part of any like negative energy like that. And I think that's another way that we see like unfortunately in very black and white terms to me it's both like we have to feel that way internally I think but if we don't allow or use anger as a means to like move forward then we get stuck and that's a cop out and like spiritual bypassing and all the rest of this shit um yeah yeah there's a lot of that there's a lot of just trying to keep the the beach ball of anger underneath the water and it's all good. We're doing great. I'm so happy. Only positivity. But then you're just being dishonest about what's really happening. Yeah. 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 What's your, what's the deal with the millennials guide to saving, saving the world? How are we going to save the world? That was your last podcast or that's the podcast that you still do. Yeah. That's the podcast that I still do. I just have two podcasts now. Um, yeah, well I, I, that title is, um, kind of half, sarcastic or fully ironic or something in that boat. Um, I have no idea how we do that. I think like we've talked about though, that I think the one thing I know we need to do is have more conversations and ask more questions and have different conversations with different people and see things in different ways and, and be really, you know, the, the tagline is fix yourself to fix the world. Like I don't think we can do much of anything collectively or in the outside if we don't deal with our own projected bullshit. Um, So a lot of it's about looking at the correlation and parallel between our own sort of internal growth relative to the world. I think it's like Charles Eisenstein talks. I haven't really read his work, but I think he talks about that a lot too. Just like the way that we see the state of the world has a lot to say with the way that we, the way that uh, the state of ourselves right now, Um, that it's this sort of like reflective space. So I have absolutely no idea, um, and I don't really have an investment (laughs) or an agenda in terms of saving the world. I just felt like after I went through a really long period of time, like not being the person that felt authentic, that this popped into my mind as something that felt really authentic and really good and was a worthwhile use of my energy, and so I just had to do it, and I... Yeah, just viewing it as like a step somewhere and not necessarily an end game. Yeah. Saving the world's a big project. Yeah. I saw that podcast title. I was like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Let's see how she's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I hear that, man. I, I think that there are a lot of angry activists out there that just are uh, operating from a place that ultimately just creates burnout, unfortunately. You know, and that state that you're, you're, operating in is kind of like the car you're driving you know the car's getting you from place to place and it can get you there for a little while but if you're if you're driving in a car without enough oil you're the engine's gonna crash pretty quickly yeah but i also think that there's this i need to fix myself completely before i can do anything in the world community which those people annoy me more than ever because it's like their life project is just their self project and they become so fascinated with themselves and so fascinated with their last ayahuasca trip. And they just want to tell everyone else about it. And they think that that's enough when that's just, I I feel like that those are the people that are just always preparing for life and never really 
getting in the ring and digging into a project that's overwhelming and gets them to their capacity because it's like, um, you know, it's like people who think that they can't grow while being in a relationship. I was going to make the same You know, analogy. it's like yeah. people who are like, I need to work on myself forever yeah, I until, totally I, that person. until yeah. I can get into this relationship. <laughs> yeah. When you don't realize like, we know actually getting into this, this project with another person is going to help you grow too. Or getting into a, re- a a job that pushes you to your capacity, but you're figuring out how to maintain this centered space is gonna. It's it, it's it's like high, high altitude training. You know, you're really doing it then. Right. Um. So yeah, I think that there's a there's a balance. I mean, in some ways, the like the totally unconscious workaholic superficial types annoy me even less. Because at least I, like, see where it's, like, oh, cool. It's, I, I see where it's all coming from. I don't know. It's, it's all, it's, I don't know what the, what the balance is. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I definitely said that when I launched the podcast. Like, I didn't want to just be one of those people that, like, picked up and moved off the grid and was like, well, I'm taking care of myself, so therefore that's all I can do. Um, I definitely don't think that. I think that's why the podcast made the most sense to me for multiple reasons. It was like, one, this is helping me grow on a personal level. Two, I'm doing this in a sort of public vulnerable way because I think vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So if people see, and I went through a really hard time where I like couldn't find anybody, like I didn't know where to go. Like where are the other people who, where are the other people in their, in their late twenties who are like, the fuck is going on like the hell is happening in the world what the hell is happening with me like holy shit i had like a traumatic childhood who knew like no wonder i'm making all these bad decisions like holy shit i couldn't find that anywhere and i think we were all so many of us are sort of like shamed and silent and it's a painful place to go to examine all of those things. And so I thought like, even if, if I can just make one person feel more comfortable going to those places by doing this semi publicly, then I have to do it and I want to do it. And third or like second a, I, I think if, if I could name anything that I think is important in terms of quote unquote, saving the world, it's community. Like I made so many terrible self-sabotaging choices because I didn't think there were other people like me and I didn't know how I was going to like go through all of these things alone. And I think that's a really unfortunate aspect of our current world and and civilization is that we're like surrounded by people, but totally isolated. You can't like go on Tinder or go to a bar and like find a like-minded person. Like that's a very complicated complex thing to do but with the podcast it's like if I can say all these things in the public sphere and people can sort of like you know uh gather there both in person and just through technology um and I can bring those people together and connect those people so that they feel brave enough to like make the choices that they want to make or they feel brave enough to engage in really difficult processes of of learning more about themselves like oh my god that's what I want to do and and the podcast for me was always a step toward doing that uh in a more concrete way like on actual land where we could actually create that sort of sort of community vibe yeah it's an interesting point you made about community because community on the psycho spiritual level is one of the most important things 
to have, but also on a pragmatic save the world, like environmental basis. You see what's happening with a lot of the, uh, you know, the fires that are happening, right? You better have a couple close friends that you can call. You better have (laughs) community on a very real level. Uh, And I, I, I think that that is probably what, you know, what will keep us together throughout the next hundred years or not are these small bands of a hundred, 200 people. You know, if there was a a guy named Sam Quinones who wrote a book called dreamland, uh, the true story of America's opiate epidemic. And he Mm. says he doesn't think that the opiate epidemic would have spread nearly as quickly without the advent of Walmart because Walmart moved into a lot of these small Midwestern communities and then all of the mom and pop drug stores went out of business. And then when Lenny went in to go get his oxy, uh, oxy dosage, there was no accountability right. there. Whereas if it was a mom and pop drug store, you know, you see, oh, Lenny's seems like he's getting on uh, the shit. Let's call his family. Let's have some kind of community intervention before it gets too bad. Whereas if you don't have that, if there's no accountability and there's no connection and no one knows each other people can fall off the rails really quickly and there's no one there to catch them totally and and even like looping this back around i think to like feminine masculine energy and the patriarchy like to me there's this very patriarchal expectation about like independence and self-reliance and autonomy like you gotta do it like i lived on my own for the first time uh since i was really young because i was just in relationships all the time and i lived alone and it was the most horrible, like miserable experience. And on the one hand, I'm being like getting all this, like you need to be as happy alone as you are with other people. And you need to like, you know, your solitude is the, and I was like, this fucking sucks. Like, I don't want to, like, it's cold. I'm lonely. I'm lonely. I'm bored. Like I'm, I'm exhausted from cooking for myself all the time. Like it's so much energy for such a little return. Like I want to laugh with someone. I want to have sex with someone. I want to just hang out with someone. I got so pissed off and I think that the reason the system continues to work is because we're kept isolated and autonomous and we have this expectation that we're supposed to do it all. There's no way that one person can take care of themselves and a family, like have good food, you know, work in a a full-time job, like self-care, like we, and then we just hate ourselves and it like perpetuates the process. To me, like there's something so gentle and, um, and and like something so disruptive about f- community. <laughs> well, well, it it uh, helps you get out of your own head. So let's say you have this experience, n- name it that you are getting in your head about, and it starts to fester. And you, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. What he did to me. Yeah. And there's no one. And you, and I'm just gonna go to bed. I'm gonna keep thinking about that motherfucker right. that did that to me. Right. And you think about it for day after day, and then you're right. like, you know, I'm gonna go fucking kill that motherfucker. Whereas if you had a community of friends, and you're <laughs> like, dude, this motherfucker right. just shortchanged me at a restaurant. Like, dude. Maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe yeah. he, you know, maybe it was a misunderstanding. Like, oh, yeah, shit. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. Okay. And they can kind of pull you back because they're yeah. showing you this other perspective that you don't get to have. Right. right? And if it, you were with them in like a small community and they had a role and you relied on them, it's like, you know, there's this town that I spend a lot of time in now that 
someone said, you know, you can't be an asshole. Like you're going to see that person in the cafe the next morning. Like everyone knows each other. Like it really forces you to kind of step up and be a big person because this place is too small for, for you to have beefs like that without it getting out of hand. Yeah. Um, and, and I think for sure it would make us more human. And I think it would, it would disrupt systems in such an intense way. I think if we're just like, no, fuck that. Like I'm not opting into this bullshit, independent, autonomous thing. Like, and I think even codependency has been co-opted within that space, right? For like make people feel bad for wanting to be with people like, and they're, yeah, sure. There's toxic relationships. I've been in many, but I started to get mad at myself for even desiring partnership. Like, that's not okay, you know? Yeah, well, you can get into an unhealthy situation with someone where you're only spending time with that partner and you're starting to take on their perspective, which is why then listening to your friends when you're like, hey, yo, that bitch is crazy. You got you to gotta get out of this one, Dan. Uh, and then to actually listen to them because yeah. you're not taking in a multitude of perspectives, right? That's, that's also important, like having your... Um, it's almost like a a board, you know, like you want a, a a board of people that you respect who you can come to with your issues and get their perspectives. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, you take it out t- too far and like famous people have this problem where they're getting everyone's perspective all the time and they can't find their own, their own voice throughout it. Yeah. Have you experienced, are you famous enough to have experienced that? Uh, no, but I also think that, like, I'm drawn to not placate my audience. Like, I, the grossest I feel is when I placate the left. And, like, yeah, totally. That's horrible, isn't it? Like, get, and then when I get that voice, I'm like, <laughs> no, fuck that, Kyle. Why are you being so callow? And, and or not uh, craven or mm. being so craven in, in this time. Like why, why do you want to be a voice if you're just going to try and be liked? Like you don't, des- you don't actually deserve a platform if you're just going to go out there to try and be liked. Right. So I want what I do to challenge people yeah. and I, I want my perspective to challenge people. And that's why, I mean, I, I have no aspirations of being a, a professional comedian or anything, but like over the last year going in and doing open mics and figuring out where that line of offense is and like what I can poke at a group of strangers and what will make them like, ha, Oh, like the, I mean the first time that I said something that was offensive on stage and no one laughed and I got that feeling of like, Whoa, you guys fucking hate me right now. You think I'm really a bad person let's sit in that feeling for a second and okay, I don't want to be here, but I want to be just on the other side of it. And that's why I think comedians are, I just have so much respect for them because a laugh is an agreeance in some way with what you're saying. And if you can get them into a place where they're like, ah, that was fucked up, but damn, it was true. Like that's a voice that I want to hear out in the world. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, yeah, otherwise you don't deserve it. You don't deserve the platform and you should figure out why you're so attached to that perspective. Like I I also just hate the Instagram accounts. Like I see these ones where you can tell they're just going to their base and looking for that support. And then they get all of these outrage, you know, they get the outrage comments in agreeance. And it's not a way to live a healthy existence, and it's it's not fun 
either because those people can then take it away from you at any point. Like if they're giving it to you, they can take it away from you. So it's trying to seek that external validation is not, not healthy. Um, podcasting is easy though, because I forget that there's anyone listening. (laughs) So I'm just talking to you. Yeah. And I think it's harder if you are like a self-help coach going around to all these big, you know, seminars and you have people coming up to you all the time being like, you're amazing. Oh my gosh. I love, you know, you're just speaking truth. And you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm no one. Come back. I think you just talk in that voice. Yeah. Come back to my loft tonight. (laughs) You know, but you see how power reveals. And I think that there are certain situations like you see, it's just huge in the self-help community where people try and give themselves a pluses in ethics and morality and they don't talk about it. They don't talk about themselves as flawed humans. You know, it's like Chris has that great line, follow those who seek uh, the truth, be wary of those who claim to have found it. Right. I, I would say that that's what I'm trying. That's totally. the place that I'm trying to hold. And it's also scary. Like that's, that's another thing is like just to, to say something or uh, growing up, it was, I was much more comfortable doing activities that scared me physically. And I would, you know, like growing up skateboarding, I was really good at it. And I was especially good at doing really like big, dangerous stunts. And that moment of like standing on the roof with a skateboard, looking down and doing a, a an error into the transition of a half pipe eight feet below you and having to be like, okay, fuck it. We're going to do this. Mm. Yes. And then doing it was a really good mental muscle to, to work through that fear. So if there's anything I'm comfortable with, it's working through that moment. But I also have, have realized, you know, over the last five years or so that I can't, that there are places physically where I take it too far and I really injure myself and I don't want that to happen anymore because those injuries, sometimes you don't come back from them or you don't come back to a hundred percent. And I mean, I'll tell you, I'm done breaking my arms. I really would rather not do it for a fifth time. I've had five surgeries on my arms and that's just as a result of me being the kind of person where I say, fuck it, let's do this. We got this. And, but I think that you could take that to intellectual pursuits. Like how do we get, how can I get into a space that is, you know, brave and honest, but not reckless? Because right. I because I don't want to be reckless, and I and I think that there's also just a, a huge. There are a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> there are a fucking lot of people that that are uh, you know that they like just holding that stick of dynamite and seeing if they'll survive through it. You know, they have that kind of masochistic. Let's just say something because it will be outrageous. Kind of. Uh, humor or, you know, their voice that they want that to be their voice. Like, I want to say shit that I believe. I don't want to say stuff that then I'm like, "Eh, I didn't really believe that, but it got a response. Right. Well, and it goes back to identity too, right? Like how much about that is I want people to see me as the person who does this stuff. Right. So like, I feel like I was able to avoid so much of my own bullshit and trauma because I was able to like, well, look at my, 
husband and look at my house and look at my job and I'm so successful and I have my own business and I'm, you know, da, 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 da. And like, once those things were stripped away from me, like I couldn't use those as excuses anymore. I was like, who am I? And, and where is my value? You know, I feel like you talked about this recently when you were injured too. It was like, you're sort of forced to step back from this thing that's so integral to your identity and and I think value and worth, at least that was what it was for me. And like you you're forced to find I remember asking myself, hey, Anya, um, if you like lost your arm, would you like love yourself still? And the answer was like, definitely not. Like yeah. I would be so miserable and I'd think I was hideous and ugly and like totally unworthy of anything. And that was a really kind of horrifying moment where I recognized that I had to do a lot more work to figure out like, where are the things that, um, you know, that are out of my control? Like if I'm constantly using the things that I can control as my value, then that all can be taken away from me. Like if I use these external things as, as, as my own self-worth and value, and those things are taken away, then where does that leave me? Like, I need to find the other stuff. I need to find the stuff that couldn't be taken away. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, the great Ferris Bueller said, I don't believe in isms. I just believe in me. Right. Uh, and I think that there's the isms that we fall into, whether it's environmentalism or that was the one that I fell into. And I I think that still the, I, I believe in the philosophy of, caring for the planet and trying to leave the campsite a little bit nicer than you found it. Um, but even in that, like I, when I was younger, I found community with environmentalists and I, I was kind of praised and like winning environmental awards because I was like 18 and doing this stuff. And then having to think about, and, and people let you get away with it with sloppy thinking when you're a teenager and just saying, you know, basic statements that you can't really argue with like like we really need to step up and change the world like yeah you, what did you just say you didn't say anything there that was not a that wasn't a statement that meant anything right but they but they let you get away with it because you're like passionate and young but to have to grow out of that into asking myself questions like what do i really believe about this and where is where is there sloppy thinking in the environmental movement and there's a lot but how do i try and have more clear thinking and and without throwing it all out you know and i think that that's there's a there's a we're in this time right now where i think that um it's easy for people to 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 kind of bundle issues together uh and it's the result of tribalism. So, you know, people who are, you know, the left is now seen as like hypersensitive, me too, uh, environmentalists, but don't really know what triggered, they're talking yeah. about, triggered. Yeah. And that's this huge bundle. Yeah. And then people on the right are, you know, gun lover, limited government, uh, bigoted, bigoted, uh, you know, uh, pro-life then there's that bundle over there, right. right? Without any nuance, like I'm a hunter, I own a gun, right? I 
think that it should be a lot harder to get a semi-automatic weapon than it is right now. I think that there should be background checks. One of the issues that we're covering in the Motherfucker Awards this year is firepower. And now it is and and it's munitions companies. It's the NRA. It's it's this whole world over there. And I that was probably the issue that was most I was the most touchy to take it on because I know that it's going to get the show is going to get pitted as a left show, but like then to, to be too afraid to just cover it. Like, I think that a lot of people are afraid to call out the NRA because they're afraid to make any critiques of, of weapons in the country without talking about how much the NRA influences our politicians and how many people do want more gun control, but our government is not representing that mm. with their decisions because of the how, because it's very difficult to get a politician to do anything now if you're not paying them, right? So, like, those are the kinds of conversations that I do want to have that are more specific, and we actually get into it, and I get to sit down with people who really know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, and on the, you know, on the opposite end, on the environmental end, yeah, I love sitting down with, with marine biologists and ecologists and oceanographers and mycologists and people that really study this stuff and know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, I think that's the place that we want to get to. At least that's where I'm trying to sharpen my own thinking. And yeah. I'm really afraid also of getting into a place where I come off as an expert. Yeah. Because then I need to be right all the time. Yeah, and where do you go from there? If you're an expert, then there's like... That, well, then like, you get locked into it. Yeah. Right? Then you get locked into it, and then you get a big ego, and people are always asking you about your thing all the time. Yeah. And you become the expert on that, and that becomes a huge part of your identity, and then you turn into a dick. Yeah. And I think it's much, you know, it's obviously more real and more vulnerable, and I do this on my podcast all the time. It's like I started this podcast, and I had this set of beliefs, and guess what? Like, I'm questioning them now, and I'm not really sure if I feel that way anymore. I feel like... But let me show you how like that believing in that thing or f thinking that thing led me to this other place. Like it's also important to, you know, identify those things about ourselves, but then know that we can always change our mind. Like it's not brave at all to, I used to do this in relationships, like, but I told everyone this was the guy. So right. now I'm like too embarrassed to be like, actually, I think I was wrong about it. But like, that's the embarrassment is not being able to admit you were wrong or that you changed your mind. You know, like it's the mature, healthy, vulnerable thing to do is like, well, I thought that at one time, but you know, I'm, I wasn't right. And if you're going to give me shit for that, like, fuck you, you know, and, and I'm going to move forward and use that as a lesson. Yeah. Um, but then again, you don't want to talk about all that on the podcast. Oh yeah. No, I wasn't talking right? about the podcast. No, no, no. I'm yeah, just saying yeah. like there, you know, there yeah. are, <laughs> Definitely. I have a friend who talks about all of it on the podcast yeah. and then it's like, Ooh, now you got to backtrack a lot because there are all these different decisions that you make, you know, for which is, sure. that's, that's a, uh, just not an intelligent place to get to, to be in. Also, because no. then it's like if you're talking about all your relationships on your podcast, it, like think about, you know, that friend that you have that you talk to about your relationship and you're like, oh, yeah, I think we're going to break up. And then you end up getting back together <laughs> and then it makes the relationship awkward between you, between you and your friend, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then you're like, fuck, I can't really tell her now because now <laughs> we're like back together. And it, like, it's like the your, roller coaster. It's like that times however big your podcast audience is. Right, like so, so multiply that friend between now and everyone who listens to your show, and you're like, so guys, um, 
Uh, yeah, Anya and I got <laughs> back together. We worked it out. I yeah. know that last time I said I was never going to talk to that bitch again, but uh, anyway, uh, moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that's that's a shitty place to be, too. Yeah. Agreed. We've been going for a little while. This is a I fun know. conversation. It was. Yeah, we really f- flowed through it. Uh, where can people check you out uh, and listen to your podcast and uh, all that good stuff? Yeah, so two podcasts, uh, Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Just make sure you spell millennial right because it won't show up otherwise. We don't know how to. <laughs> two L's, two M's. M- Millennium Falcon. Yeah. Uh, and then the second podcast is Whore Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, that I do with my friend Aaron. And uh, find me on Instagram. It's just my name, Anya.Kats, K-A-A-T-S. What about you, Kyle? Uh, the Kyle Tierman Show. That's my that's my thing. <laughs> um, but, I mean, just type my name in and yeah. to the Googles, and hopefully uh, it'll show up somewhere. Ta-ta. It was fun. Awesome. Thanks. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that episode. Um, if you would like to come to the Motherfucker Awards, which you definitely should, head to themotherfuckerawards.com and check out Kyle on all of his uh, social media, etc. Um, and what else? Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song today called Work by Charlotte Day Wilson. The song was um, recommended to me by my dear friend Aaron, co-host of Horror She's kind of like my musical muse. Um, we both really like music. We're like obsessing. She wrote, she created a whole fucking spreadsheet of different songs that we could play on Horror Rapport and like what they're about in relation to sex and pull out specific lyrics around, um, you know, which ones related to what topics and what episodes. Uh, and I sort of fell in love with her a little more. Uh, which is hard to which is hard to imagine because I don't know how anybody could um, be so obsessed with someone as I am with Aaron. Anyway, uh, yeah, so work, <laughs> Charlotte Day Wilson. I got distracted, just distracted by my friend there for a second. Um, and I think it's it's a really great song. Um, I think it's about a romantic relationship, but I think it speaks a lot to what I was talking about in the intro around. Um, when we get to a place where we have what we want or where we can have what we want, when we live in alignment that it still takes work and that that's okay and it's worth it and in the end it's going to feel good and we're going to learn more about ourselves and others in the world and feel happier and freer. And that's it. Talk to you guys next week.
take a little time But with you by my side 